On today's episode, I feel like singing. I'm in such an interesting mood. I'm singing. It's Christmas time, but it doesn't feel like it. It's a lockdown outside. I'm stuck inside. But don't you worry, cause my guest today's gonna put you in the best mood. Because he's gonna talk about resiliency. And you might think that you might not see that you don't even know how much resiliency. Yeah, I'm working on it. That's that's literally what I do before I do my introductions. I try to sing to myself to get in the zone, get in the mood, and uh, we're doing just that right now. We're giving you a taste of what it's like before we hit the record button, ladies and gentlemen. We're uh, <laughs> we're in a good mood today. You know, it's it's Christmas. It's the holiday season. As much as we've been stuck in lockdown, I would just like to say that today's guest is. Uh, Reminder of loving yourself and bringing it back to um, what what being resilient really means, what it feels like. I mean, at the end of the day, the raw definition of resiliency here in front of me is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or to, uh, you know, essentially just have a, a toughness. And Stephen Chorba, who I have on today, argues that human beings aren't springs. You can't just amazingly, out of nowhere, spring back. It takes incremental progression to get back to where you once were to improve from wherever it is you're improving from. And I just want to say that today's today's episode was special. I was very humbled. I recognize that for anyone out there who is a cancer survivor um, does not deserve just that label. They're more than that. Uh, For starters, surviving cancer is huge. I can't imagine what that is like for any individual who's gone through it or is going through it currently, um, as well as their loved ones and family members. And Stephen shines just a brighter light on recognizing that when you have something else to chase and look forward to other than battling cancer, you recognize that your identity doesn't just need to be shaped around that. It's the very last thing that Stephen, outside of the incredible hardships he's had to face through cancer, he defines himself around. All right. So who is Stephen Chorba and what is his story? Stephen Chorba was born in Edmonton in the year 1964. He's an artist, a community builder, a wellness advocate, and a cancer survivor. He's someone who projects the drive and depth of a person who knows life is precious. There is a focus in every waking moment, a kind of deep truth view that gives cruisers through life pause for thought. In 2003, Stephen challenged the conventional approaches to cancer survivorship. In fact, his goal was not to beat cancer, but instead he focused on helping others and he did so in the biggest way he could to cope with numerous surgeries, radiation treatments, and a disruptive 10-year battle and rehabilitative process. He developed Peppy, 
a ruthlessly simple and powerful me-to-we belief system of giving back, self-improvement, and inspiring other people. As a measure to improve the quality of his mental and physical health, he took a risk. Stephen used arts in medicine therapy as an alternative to traditional pain medication and trained like an Olympic athlete to elevate his immune function. And it paid off. Prehabilitative medicine that Stephen started doing over 15 years ago is now standard protocol for leading cancer care clinics around the world. From 2013 to 2015, he led and convinced countless corporate sponsors to come together and build a safe place for endangered, traumatized youth at iHuman to turn their life around through creativity and community building. As a dedicated, savvy do-gooder and through art donations, Stephen has helped raise a total of over $5 million for a variety of charities here in Alberta. Prior to his cancer battle, Stephen was an award-winning brand communication strategist and passionate public speaker. His visionary work for clients like Industry Canada, Xerox, Apple, the Department of National Defense, the Alberta government and others have been recognized by the Smithsonian Institute for Innovation in risk-managed digital brand building. There you have it. Let's dive in and right here on the Second Floor Podcast, let's learn more about Stephen Torba. Welcome, Stephen Chorba, to the Second Floor Podcast. Thank you. This is exciting. I appreciate you helping me correct the way we say your last name before we went on air there. And I just want to ask if that was with enough attitude. Totally enough attitude. (laughs) We don't want to confuse this Stephen Chorba with another Stephen Chorba. (laughs) I I just want to appreciate you for a second, Stephen, you know, and and being out here with me today and uh, just bringing to light really how easy it was to connect with you. Um, This was almost a year ago, I'd say, at the time I met you for the first time when, you know, shout out to Raj Dillon, he he shares with me a magazine Mm -hmm. and he puts it in front of me and he's like, you need this guy on your podcast. I was like, okay, well, someone was on the front cover of Avenue and um, it was your story in light of how, you know, you've been um, going through the steps of surviving cancer and your your story wrapped around uh you know that just the, the severe amount of adversity you've had to overcome and if anyone does want to go into the extreme detail of it they can check out that copy of avenue magazine where you do go into detail and i remember it wasn't planned you were sitting there at al centro just right on the coffee uh, countertop bar side and I just, I looked at you and I recognized you. And I was like, that's Steven. That's, that's, that's him from the front cover of Avenue Magazine. And uh, I just remember, I was like, I'm just going to go say hi. And, you know, just see how he's doing. And I remember just like 
for me, I'm a big believer in energy and just like how, how much someone feels like they're open, you know, dependent on whether or not they have walls up. And I just recall how like comfortable I felt talking to you. You know, I, I could clearly tell I was probably interrupting you doing something on your phone while you were eating. You were in your space. It was your me time. But uh, I just appreciate you, Stephen, for from that point onwards to uh, that one time you took fo- like photographs of me and my friends just sitting down there at an event. Mm-hmm. You know, you were kind of just orchestrating uh, everything from the photographer perspective and that side of you. And I just want to say that, like, it's it's comforting to just see how that's clearly how you must show and and keep your walls open with anyone who you meet for the first time. And you you could have easily been like, Hey, yeah, I'm going to try and wrap up this conversation, but you made me feel like I could talk to you for an entire hour if I needed to at that time. Thank you for that. I, I think, um, wow, what a compliment, but that's who I am as a person. Yeah. Just an abundance of energy. And, um, when you go through something like cancer, and you're able to come out the other side. Um, I think the thing that that really helped me was at the start of when I was first diagnosed with cancer, um, I set an intention where, you know, I lost my mom to cancer when I was 16, where even though I beat cancer, I didn't want to be identified with cancer. In other words, I wasn't born to be a cancer survivor. I was born to be so much more. Um, fortunately for those who have to go through cancer, about 48% survive, um, and the others don't. But wouldn't it be great if the story that you tell is not, hey, I survived cancer, but maybe a better story where, you know, I was able to help build community. Um, I was able to discover the unique gift that I had in life and I was able to share it with others and maybe inspire others. And that's who I am. Um, so even in conversations I have with uh, one of the um, healthcare boards I sit on um, in, in one of, a strategy session we had less than two weeks ago. At the start of the strategy session, I, you know, we were all talking about patient empowerment and how they want to uh, improve return on value with patient care. And I'm going, hey, everyone, this might surprise you, but I never wanted to be a patient. I did not. I just treat me like a human being. Um, because patient means to end suffering. And there's stuff that happens before the suffering and there's stuff that happens after the suffering. You have a, a previous life to live or you have a previous life that you wanted to live and then you get this interruption and then you have the rest of your life to live. And so for me, it was all about that abundance of energy, giving back, you know, being grateful, but not wanting to be identified as a cancer survivor. So. I'm really glad you say that because it brings to light for those listening not to just simply label someone who survived cancer as just that they're they're more than that you know you're clearly more than that you you were you were someone before you were diagnosed with cancer you're someone during it and out of it so would you argue that based off the language we use in society that it's, it's best to refrain from labeling someone as oh it's amazing you're a cancer survivor like like does that does that get sticky with you as well as um does anyone else who you can identify who's gone through um, similar struggles i don't think it's a sticking point i think it it does become an opportunity to talk about the concept of resilience because you know you see someone who's survived hardship in life whether it's cancer 
whether it's a, uh, a death in the family, whether it's a relationship that went sideways, whether it's loss of business, whatever. You see that person who overcomes that adversity in life as having done it themselves. And you say, hey, that's a resilient person. But the lesson from cancer and, and the danger, the stickiness of labeling a person as a cancer survivor or someone who is resilient is that they didn't do it alone. Um, resilience, one of the biggest lessons of resilience, it's not a me thing, it's a we thing. Um, if you're lucky enough to be surrounded by a group of people, let's call them your tribe, people you share values with, people you trust, um, people you may, that you may be able to help in some way on an ongoing basis, um, a big part of resilience is that we aspect. Um, it's not a singular thing, and yet societies identify individuals as being resilient. Even if you don't have a tribe um, supporting you, you, you're often trying to get through tough times or establishing meaningful goals for the benefit of helping others, like your children. Maybe you want your children to have more opportunities than, than you had because you came from poverty. And they're a part of your tribe to a degree. Yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, you might have that single parent mom or single parent dad that has struggled to raise their children and now their children are doing great. And you say, hey, look at that resilient mom or dad or person um, there's more to that one person. It, it's always a, uh, it's always a we thing. So there's a there's that lesson um, that I'm trying to teach people. There's something about having a team under your back, no matter what it is you're trying to accomplish in your life. And I, I notice this even from uh, some of the clients I work closely with, and they're they're married, they have kids. They're putting health as their priority. And it's always so interesting, Stephen, on the point of recognizing that it's not done alone, that point you made. One client in particular of mine, she tells me how her husband and her have very different uh, outlooks on uh, the importance of having a team and the importance of how many cups there are in one another's life um, fulfilling uh, each and every single one of their desires. So for her, because she desires health, it's one of her biggest priorities. For him, not so much, mm -hmm. right? For him, he's like, I'm married. What's the point? <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's on that, uh, that mindset, right? But for her, she's like, because health's my priority and I know I can't do it alone. For her, she's like, I have you as my trainer. I have my physiotherapist. I have my massage therapist. I have all of these quote-unquote therapists who are on the same page. I'm always ensuring that all of you kind of know where I'm at, but I take the time to ensure that everything I'm going through and that gets tough, I want you all to be a part of it. I want, I want, I want, to, I want to recognize that I'm more than just a mother. I'm more than just a wife. There's certain people out there who believe in that team aspect, Stephen, who, who recognize that if they want to achieve something, it's not done alone. Yeah, well, I mean, that, you know, that's powerful. Um, if, we, if we take that idea and if we take a look at what the world was like prior to COVID, um, there is, there was, and there still is, an epidemic of loneliness. There's a lot of people that didn't have their team, especially young people, millennials, the OK Boomers, the Gen Zs, 
who are growing up um, being trained by these dopamine machines, social media, and they're getting a lot of their buckets filled, a lot of their support and cues to move forward in life from you know, a little electronic device. That, and, and there's a huge danger in that where you know, they're not learning how to lean on other people and on how to give back and how to create meaningful relationships and how to identify you know, values in other people that they want to share and learn how to build trust with people in their life, again, call them their tribe, and then probably the most healing aspect of social health is helping another person. It's, it's, just, you know, it's not enough just to have an interest in health and wellness or an interest in, let's say, hockey. Like you can go to a hockey game and watch. You, know, you can be with 20,000 people watching the Oilers play and feel like, well, we all have this common shared interest of you know, supporting our local hockey team. But it's not until you can establish a relationship with someone within those 20,000 people and actually help that person that you get the benefits of what I would call social health. And that's, that was missing prior to COVID. And so for me, you know, I see, again, COVID as an opportunity for the world to slow down, to, um, we needed the time out. It, it was a really harsh time out. People are losing their businesses. Our culture has been disrupted. The economy has been disrupted. There's a, been a huge um, clinical intervention that we're all having to deal with. And there's some uncertainty about the future. But we really needed to slow down and contemplate what things were like prior to COVID and understand that as we come out of COVID, and we will, that our new normal, there's an opportunity for it to be better. It has to be. Otherwise, this, is, this will be a big fail. It, it's so true. It's, it's one of those things, Stephen, where I recognize that the element of slowing down is, is it's like textbook what you just said because if you don't slow down well you kind of you have to you're forced to slow down you know there's so many things that have stopped in people's lives so many things that have been taken away from from people especially financially to a degree from a relationship perspective too right people out there who don't live together and recognize okay well Maybe we shouldn't see each other because with everything with with what's happening, other individuals who are single and are dating. Oh well, they're now I can't. Now I feel bad if I actually go out and see someone or just other elements of. Um, it's 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 triggering that loneliness to to a higher, higher degree, and I I appreciate you saying that that level of loneliness, it was all it was there it was already there prior to COVID. Now it's just amplified. What we do have control over is who we have with us. I, I, I find that nothing feels more empowering going back to the concept of a team and recognizing that here's our chance to get closer with our families, to get closer with our friends, to really like be real with one another because we're all facing the same challenge. It's not like one of those things pre-COVID where you're going through something and you almost feel like, ah, you don't want to... You don't want to tell someone what you're going through, and uh, you don't want you don't want to be a burden. And it's even sad to like say that. I've, I've felt like that in the past. When now I recognize through COVID, where it's like it's important to express how you're feeling. 
I, I almost feel like now it's, it's, it's different in the way we ask, how's it going? It's like, Hey, like, how are you? Is everything okay? Are you healthy? Is your family okay? Yeah. I mean, we all, great point. Um, you know, it used to bother me. It's, it still will. If you go to a restaurant on Jasper Avenue and you're paying $19 for an appetizer, which is really just eggs that are whipped up with some heavy cream and done over low heat. Um, and, and you see four people sitting around a table, obviously good friends, and they have their faces buried in their phones. That has to stop. Um, you know, the opportunity to, you know, develop, have relationships that are a lot deeper than that have to happen. Because again, like I said earlier, we all have the ability, just by being empathetic, by being present with another person, to help that other person, to heal that other person. This is... In fact, what was happening and is happening in England, it's called social prescribing. So you have a person that might be struggling with mental health. And the traditional route would be they would singly go see a psychotherapist, maybe get them on some meds, um, and and deal with their mental health that way. Well, they're now, um, they've turned and and they're exercising something, something called social prescribing. Well, they'll take that person and put them in a group with other like people and they'll build a garden together and they all hate gardening it's like i don't want to do this i don't want to get my hands dirty and it's incredible when they overcome that aspect of it and they show up at a regular time and they get to uh, learn how to trust other people Um, and i call these other people their accidental tribe which is a very fascinating idea where if you've suffered like you know i've suffered from head and neck cancer so when I meet other head and neck cancer people and they've been through the trauma of a 14-hour surgery and radiation and loss of saliva, loss of business income and all this stuff, there's immediate trust that you have. So imagine this person in England and they're, they're building this garden with all these people they don't know, but they all know that they're severely depressed um, and they have huge mental health issues that they're able to get together and... Uh, scratch some dirt, throw some seeds and, sh- and water this thing and grow something and celebrate that. And then all of a sudden, you know, 90% of their mental health problems are gone. No phones, no technology, just human beings, again, doing the we thing. Um, and, and I'm really hoping that, I know COVID is a very painful lesson that we're learning, but I hope, you know, that becomes part of the new culture, even if it's 5 or 10% it's healthy. Because we have a lot of young people, uh, OK Boomers, Millennials, Gen Z, that, again, they're growing up in a very unhealthy environment. And think about it. They had no choice. It's not the parents' fault. It's not their it's fault. No fault. It just evolved. And it's, it's worse than ever because of COVID. Like you said, it's been amplified. And so that's a huge part of the Sunflower Project. You know, we... Something happened in the spring, you know, April moving into May, where I, I think, not unlike yourself, decided that I wasn't going to reinvent myself because of COVID. I wasn't going to pivot my company and try to change what I was going to do. I was simply going to experience the COVID life mm-hmm. and let things flow and unfold the way they needed to be. Naturally. <clears throat> yeah. Um, like the cancer thing. I didn't want to be identified as, oh, he has a company that was reimagined because of COVID, but 
rather, no, that's Stephen. He, you know, during COVID, he just kind of went about his way, ran stairs. <laughs> that's what he'd do anyway. <laughs> and then in 2021, you know, uh, pulled off this project that is the, the most positive, inspiring outcome that you could imagine. And it happened because of COVID. And that's the thing that people remember in 2025 and 2030, how we went out and built the world's largest sunflower print and, and inspired parents and teachers and kids and business owners about the true definition of resilience. And that's the thing that they'll remember. Not, oh, 2020 was a pandemic war. There's something I'd love to catch you on in what you said originally about what I believe is deemed social proof, if I'm using that word correctly. <clears throat> when you share and connect with others so easily uh, based off of similar struggles. Uh, there's someone whom I know, and this was shared with me recently, and it really hit me when they said this. It so much so relates to what you say. It's a very similar story. I, I want to share it because it doesn't matter how old you are when you're going through something like this. Um, this individual, early in their years of experiencing migraines, they felt like they were going through it alone, that they're the only one going through it. They didn't even want to share it, Stephen, with, with others. Mm -hmm. They chose not to. They almost felt bad if they did. And going through at young age, they're like, hey, this is my battle. I have to figure this out. It's only me, only me. Very good project was that, that they were involved in in school was once a week. They had to go check in. And it was with like a clinical, um, I believe, psychotherapist, something along the lines of that. Uh, I believe a neuropsychologist, someone who studies the brain. And it was this individual, five others, these five others weren't going through the same thing, but had their own struggles they dealt with. And all it took was for one of them to almost say exactly what this person was feeling every day. They just put it in the right words. And, and they were just immediately like, it shifted. They discovered they, their... they felt like, I'm not alone. Oh my goodness. And the fact that this was, it was in a focus group. It wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. It was neuropsychologists and all five of them talking. And, and, and it was digitally and the, they weren't actually there, but five of them were sitting together. And it was just, I could just see when, you know, God bless this person's soul and they were telling me, I could just see how much it, it uplifted them. It, it made them feel like, at that age of 16, 17, going through a struggle at that age. And I, I've I've never personally been there, but I've seen really close people go through it. And nothing is more confusing when you're that young. When you start recognizing, like, you get confused. You get, you get into that mentality of, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why did I deserve this? You know, whether you're religious or not, you just start feeling like, was this supposed to happen? Was it not to? I'd like... What did I do wrong to deserve to, to, to have this happen to me? That happens. But then you even just meet four other people your age, just as bubbly as you on the outside, and they're being that honest. It kind of draws back to that team aspect and, and us now going into the topic of resiliency where you have to you have to push through it and you have to recognize that like if you're going to spring back into the life you want to live – if you keep bottling it up inside, the only thing that's going to come back to bite you up in the up, up in the ass is going to be rage, and, and then all of a sudden you wonder why everyone thinks you're so mad all the time. 
Yeah, it, the accidental tribe is powerful. There's, you know, we're surrounded. Um, we're in a world where so much of our connectivity is digital, and yet there are people in our lives who are <clears throat> suffering, who are experiencing challenges, um, who are experiencing you know negative mindset the same way yeah. that we are. And and if it, it all, like you said, all it takes is four or five people. Um, and when you can discover your accidental tribe, that trust is there. And you can build on that trust. And yet we don't have any of that today. I, I remember when I was young, when I was growing up, <clears throat> 15 years old, and I got the phone call from my uncle. It, you know, My mom was in the hospital. We were living in San Diego. My brother and I uh, flew up to Vancouver. Uh, we learned from uh, a friend's dad who was a doctor that you know her condition was a lot serious than what uh, our family was trying to, you know, tell us she had cancer, brain cancer, and she actually died the day that we flew in. Who was this? Um, my mother. Yeah. She died of cancer. She was 37 years old. I wasn't even, you know, barely 16 years old. So young. And I remember my uncle um, t- t- teaching me a very valuable lesson about if you have 25 cents to call all your friends, you're a very wealthy person. Um, and I don't, you know, I remember him t- telling me that, and I don't know why he told me that, but it was to lean on. It was his way of telling me you need to find someone to lean on, uh, and, and you're a rich person if you had one person. And today, a lot of us uh, don't, because we're not able to create those connections. So it, it must be hard for people that are you know, going through these challenging times, or through life in general, you know, even pre-COVID, when they're told, hey, you, you need to fix yourself. You need to become more mentally tough or goal-oriented or more resilient or more whatever. You know, putting it all on that one person, because it's, but it's never their job. The push-through-the-pain mentality? Does that, does that bother you sometimes, like it, that it, David Goggins approach? It does. It's funny that you mentioned David, because half the stuff he says I like, but half the stuff he says is focused at such a narrow audience. Yeah. Not I, everyone can operate like that. That's can't. the thing you it's have to un, respect. It's unrealistic. Um, my, my hope is to, is to be, you know, to help a lot of people through some very simple lessons, to give them a very simple process where, where they understand that mental health doesn't have to be a reactive thing. You know, the whole idea, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. I hate that. Why would you wait for something to almost kill you to get stronger? Wouldn't it be better that if you just had small wins every day and you just did things that incrementally made you stronger? Like watching a sunflower grow. I mean, these are tall plants. They grow 12, 16, 18 feet high. And they're top heavy. And how are they able to sustain themselves? Because they grow a little bit every day. And that wind pushes them and tests their resilience. And then they're two feet tall, four feet tall. And a heavy wind comes and maybe a storm. And it's all that small incremental stuff that makes, makes you strong. And so for the, you know, the whole David Goggins mentality of being unbreakable... You know, and getting to the next level, the audience is very focused. It's not the broad audience. And I think what people need to hear is that there's stuff that they're already doing every day that are wins, even if they're losses. If you have a meaningful goal that you're moving towards in life and you have a shitty day, could be a business thing where you sent out a proposal and it was rejected, 
the fact that you invested in that proposal, that you submitted it, that you got feedback on it, you should process that as a win. That's what builds resilience. When you have variability in life, when you go out and explore life and try things, whether you're successful or not, that builds resilience. Whereas, you know, David's method is, oh, hey, we're going to do jumping jacks for three hours. <laughs> I don't get that. And we're going to do it if you didn't eat or you ate today or you worked out two hours ago. Or we're getting it done no matter what situation you're in. If you're 400 pounds, 200 pounds, you're getting it done. <laughs> I, I want to I elaborate on that. And I, I appreciate you saying it. It does fit a very particular type of audience. So that mentality does work depending on who you are. It's worked on me. I'm point A case example of this, Stephen, where last first pandemic, I decided to, to like, just zero preparation, do a half marathon. I'll run 13k next week, but he says, let's do it, man, Goggin style. Come on, we're only operating at 40% of our capacity. Let's go. And, and I'm, I'm reading his book. Yeah. At the same time, I'm just about to finish it. I'm juiced up. I'm like, yeah, man, let's do it. So Based off of how much it motivated me at that time to push through the pain, yeah, it worked. However, that Goggins mentality isn't necessarily there for you when for three months afterwards, you try and run, you can't even, your knees are buckled. You didn't train properly. You weren't incrementally progressing through the steps that one should take to prepare, you know? And that's the thing. I, I find that everyone to respect Goggins in this case from his book, he was honest and he did share how after certain times he ran at a large quantity of, of, of runs one would do in a short amount of time, he was like saying that like skin is peeling on his feet and like he's his body's breaking down and he shared that. But yeah, I mean, talk about like someone who's, as alpha as alpha gets. And what hurts me is, yeah, to your point, it's a narrow audience because one of my training partners, he told me his buddy followed that too strongly. Like I recognize that for my first run. We're now going into my full marathon, Steven. I'm just like, okay, let's do 10 clicks. Let's do 12. Let's build up to 15. Let's make sure we work out at least a one-month game plan and not just say we're going to run it and do it. Mm -hmm. We're going to hurt our bodies. One of my training partner's friends he kept injuring himself, like legitimately like breaking his shoulders, trying to do too much weight, all Goggins mentality. He kept getting injured and he kept going back to the gym. And then his doctor said, listen, you're, I, I got to write you off and you're not allowed to go to the gym for a year. And my training partner, he was, we were talking about this and he was, he was, he was mad. He's like, man, he's like, he's, Goggins is just going to get guys like this. We're going to just hurt themselves. Yeah. So... I feel like in a in a world now where information is at our fingertips and who we decide to choose as mentors and who we should listen to, we also we gotta we gotta look at that person's resume and their person's agenda compared to ours. And be like, okay, if they're up here and I'm here, okay, why don't I at least just run tomorrow? Why don't I just show up? Yeah. Let me just try that. Instead of trying to feel like you're you're, you're you it's good to have a high ceiling, but you know, start start with the start with the ten foot, then go to a thirty foot ceiling. Yeah, that again, you know, back to the idea of resilience. Mm. Resilience is all about small wins, just small incremental wins. You said there's some lessons too that you wanted to share. I'd be curious to hear those powerful too. lessons. I so the two things I, I wanted to do at the start of COVID, like you, know, you have to understand, um, 
with our business. Our business is called Peppy, which means you know the People Empowerment Company. So um, I'm a cancer coach. I would coach people and their family through cancer. And um, you know what? The first lesson, biggest lesson of resilience is all about control. So when you're given a cancer diagnosis or you're given shitty news in life. Um, don't identify, you know, with that thing. So, you, you know, for me, it wasn't, I don't want to beat cancer. I needed to find a passion that was bigger than cancer. Um, and I love helping people. I love coaching soccer. I wanted to see my boys grow up and have a good shot at doing something cool in life. So I made that my goal, simply helping other people. That became a bigger goal than beating cancer. So think about that. If I spent three years trying to build community and help people and I died of cancer, what would people remember? That I, you know, was I a community builder or a cancer survivor? So that's the first lesson um, going into anything, whatever your goal is. So, this, so we built this company. We got five amazing staff, artificial intelligence, AI voice, um, you know, we're going to launch an app and have workshops, and, and then COVID hits. Uh, literally, the face-to-face workshops we had for cancer patients, their family, uh, for millennials, for young people, anyone that wanted to build up wellness, um, couldn't do it. So I, I had two things I wanted to do. I wanted to run 56 repeats of Wolf Willow Stairs, because I'm 56 years old. And if you know Wolfville of Stairs, um, 42 meter elevation in less than a minute and a half from top to bottom. Um, so that those 56 repeats are equivalent to going up 25% of Mount Everest. How, what was the time you did it under? I did it just over three hours. So imagine climbing up 25% of Mount Everest in three hours. Oh but that wasn't goodness. my goal. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just I said I don't know how I'm going to do this. I hate doing stairs. It's the hardest. You know, four years ago I was terrible at stair climbing. That's why I got involved in stair climbing. I wanted to get better at it. I love that. It's always hard. Did you? Was there an element of hating it too, of disliking it Never. while not being good at it? Never. And I'll tell you why in a second. So that was the one goal. Um, just you know, I, I always wanted to ride my bike to Wolf Willow, which is about eight kilometers from my house, and ride it back home. And, and I'll pick up on that in a minute. I never had the time, but COVID now said, I got some free time, a little bit of free time. I have time to hop on my bike, ride to Wolf Willow, do an hour of stair training and ride home. And that was it. That was, and maybe I'll be able to do 56, maybe I won't. And the other goal I had was to grow sunflowers. Never did it before. My wife's grown sunflowers. Um, and so, we, you know, we had a patch of dirt in our backyard. It was kind of by the alley. And I started to grow these sunflowers. And it was a bit of a joke. It was like, hey, Nick, my wife, um, let's grow this forest of sunflowers. And seriously, in six or seven months, I'll be able to take a photograph of myself and do a painting, you know, a chore by Van Gogh. It was a joke. <laughs> like, you know, Van Gogh, the artist. But how it, it all started. It'll right? be a chore by Van Gogh. That's how it all started. But as I watched these sunflowers grow and the lessons they were teaching me, the storms that hit, somehow some of them got blown over and they started to bend and twist and grow, you know, 16 feet sideways, 
through bushes. There's more than one. You had so well, many had different ones to look variety. at. Yeah, we had all these different varieties. But the biggest lesson I learned was this incremental growth. And, you know, I'm excited like a little kid. You know, I'm 56 years old and I'm like an eight-year-old. Where's these damn sunflowers? They're not growing. I'm Waking up? You're looking at them I'm first thing in the morning? them every day. I'm going out taking photographs of them every day and it's nothing but dirt and weeds. And then they finally started to grow and course they're a foot tall and you know a windstorm comes in and blows half of them down and I'm up staking them up and anyhow I took that idea of that small incremental growth and watching them the wind push gently at them and I said to myself all right Chorba you're going to ride your bike to Wolf Willow and you're going to do 10 sets and you're going to ride your bike home and that bike ride home like 10 sets of Wolf Willow for most people would be an hour Mm-hmm. For me, I was able to do it in about 32, 35 minutes. So that bike ride home was like five more sets. So it's, in my mind, it's 15. Well, but I only did 10. So next time out, I, I did 15 sets, bike ride home, 20 sets, bike ride home, 25 sets. Incremental. It's getting hard now. You're doing two hours of stairs. You hit lactate threshold in your leg. Your legs are seizing up. And it's like, oh, guess what? You're stuck in the middle of the river valley. <laughs> your breakfast is waiting for you eight kilometers that way. You still have a bike ride to you go have back a home. bike ride and two challenging hill climbs, like tough hill climbs on the bike. And so, of course, after doing 25 or 30 repeats and you make it home, it's like, no, I did 35. So that was directly the lessons of the sunflowers that, you know, that take that little bit of extra hit, um, you know, because the sunflower gets taller and the head gets heavier, and the, when the wind blows, it's got to be a little bit stronger. And that, that's how I got her done. October 29th, I showed up. No, no one really knew about it. I had two friends. One of them showed up with his, you know, cell phone and videotaped the first 20 up and downs. Stuart, great guy. Love it. Early in the morning, I was by myself. You know, I banged through the first 20 sets super fast, and then five sets at a time, five sets at a time. I'm a sunflower. And like what you asked about earlier, about the pain or the hate, dude, I loved it. It was pure meditation. Nice. I mean, you can't breathe. You're, you're at the top of your lactate threshold. You can't think about anything else you can't. other than getting to the top. Um, and that's where I discovered the power of meditation. And, and most people would think if you've climbed Wolf Willow, you're nuts. Before you get to the meditation part, I just want to confirm. Were you telling yourself, Stephen, in your head, if you just did 10, and you, 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 you slept that night doing actually 10, but you said you did 15, knowing that there's going to be the next day that you're actually going to do 15. Is that how it was working? Yeah, I mean, I knew that if I, if I could do 20 and get my bike home, I could do 25. And there's some very powerful research behind this coming out of the University of Stanford. They have a new faculty called Presence. And there's a couple of doctors. Um, uh, Dr. Eric Topol runs the faculty, in it, and he's uh, spent 15 years researching the placebo effect. And, and as a trainer, you'll really love this. Uh, but him and his colleagues did a research study about eight years ago where they took, I think it was 500 or 1,000 um, people that cleaned hotel rooms, um, you know, cleaning women. And they, they asked them, um, as a group, uh, two questions. Um, do you meet the Surgeon General's minimal gu- guidelines for physical fitness? 
And they all laugh, going, no, we, what are you talking about? We clean rooms. A little parkour, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> no, we don't. They, they didn't even know what those guidelines were. Um, and then they asked them the second question, um, do you guys exercise? And they just laughed. They're like, <laughs> when will we have time to exercise? Like, this is exercise. <laughs> right, just, right? Like, we don't have time to We don't exercise. So then they took all their biometrics, blood pressure, heart rate variability, you know, everything... You know, the full top-to-body body scan. And then they split the women into two groups. And for a month, half the women continued to clean rooms. Nothing changed. Diet, they didn't exercise. They just went about their lives. The other half, the other women, they told them every day all the benefits of functional fitness. They didn't give them any vitamins. They didn't eat different. They didn't work out. They didn't do yoga. But they told them the benefits mentally, the power of positive mindset, that this functional fitness that you're doing every day builds mitochondrial health, right? You're building strength endurance, which relates to cognitive health, so no neuro dysfunction as they get older in life, all of these benefits. So after 30 days, they retested the women. Guess what? The women that got the benefit of all this information, biologically, all of their markers improved, you know, 7, 9, 11%. They got healthier. Wow. Their heart rate variability improved. Their body fat index improved. Like, it was crazy. That's amazing. So there is, there is a power. It's a long story, but there is a power in owning anything that you do in life. It's the engine that will drive Peppy forward. We're not going to be focusing on biometrics and heart rate variability. We're going to be simply... Letting people know there's all these wins in their life, and if they, especially with young people, and if they start processing their wins, whether they have, you know, a meaningful goal in life, or you know, there's gratitude that they practice, or whether they eat a rainbow, have a salad with avocado and tuna, and you know, eat a healthy meal, or if they reach out and help a good friend of theirs, that if they really understand the benefit of that to their health, that their body, their physical fitness without having to hit the gym, will improve. Oh, it's powerful I, stuff. I, I love that a lot, actually. And it's because proven it's, by science. Like it's science. Yeah. And no one's doing it. There's no one out there. It's a power of processing information and, and, and how you choose to process it and what you choose to listen to can ultimately have a huge effect on um, how you perform and, and, and how you actually uh, uh, pretty much are, are, are willing to continue to perform in the way you are because you just recognize the benefits associated with it. It's like uh, there's this gentleman named his tagline is is fit to fat to fit. Um, he's got like over 200,000 followers on Instagram. He's big in experimenting. I uh, listened to him on um, I believe it was Impact Theory. I think it was either that one or Lewis Howes. Those are two podcasts I like to listen to. And he ends up say, saying this. He says, I don't I don't tell my kids, you eat fruit, eat your vegetables. I tell them, you eat this orange and you're going to be able to have more vitamin C in your system. And guess what? It's going to make your skin glow and you're going to feel like you have more energy. Do you want more energy? Eat it. And like he, he, he says, oh, you know what? Here's this carrot. It's going to make you see better. You're going to be able to, you know, our 4K TV screen, it's going to look like it's 8K. Have some carrots and you're going to really enjoy your Disney channels now. But the way he's motivating his daughters is, the way he's delivering that information is, 
they already know they have to eat it, but now they're becoming that much more excited to eat it. You know, just like just like the the the, the individuals cleaning, right? Now now they're just have to work, and they're like, yeah, I'm gonna vacuum today, and oh, that movement's gonna make my back feel better, and I'm gonna actually I'm losing calories, and that's why I'm losing weight, and they start to be more connected to to actually doing something that originally was just work, but now that there's this element of health and fitness optimization associated with it they're on board and it's positive information that's that when it comes to behavioral change human beings we respond more to the positive than the negative that's been a huge fail with covid unfortunately with a lot of healthcare authorities i don't say that with disrespect it's been hard for them to have to pivot and scramble but you know you know there's three pillars of behavioral change one is social incentive it's got to be positive. One is immediate rewards. It's got to be positive. Yeah. Right? Don't quit smoking because it's going to kill you. Quit smoking because when you quit, you'll have more lung capacity. You'll be aerobically more fit to go hiking with your partner. Mm. And then the final one is you need to be able to monitor your progress. Um, progress monitoring. Yeah. So again, you know, comparing myself to maybe David, um, you know, just being aware of the small wins every day. You have to have a meaningful goal and moving towards that meaningful goal and, and getting those small wins and processing them. That's my, that, that would be the contrast. You know, you're not going out to try to crush 56 sets of stairs or a half a marathon and a marathon. You're trying to go out in life and just seek variability, experience, get these small and process them. Tell yourself this is a good thing. Take mental mm-hmm. note of that. And realize that over time, you're going to become more resilient than trying to go out and, you know, crush three hours and whatever. And I'm glad when we use the word goal and keeping it in mind, I'm glad we're talking more about the action and the daily occurrence of what you need to do more so than just the outcome itself. I was in this uh, two-day virtual course, Stephen. Uh, this was uh, the beginning of the first week of lockdown. And it was on motivational interviewing. That was the all-encompassing topic on how to better uh, elicit change in clients based off of the questions you ask and how you choose to ask. And we talked a little bit about smart goals. I used to, even to this day, play with the idea of the importance of smart goals, right? Make it, make it uh, measurable, make it attainable, make it relevant, time-bound, you know, make it secure, the full nine yards. It was funny on the call, she said this. Uh, this was the, the, the main, the, the host on uh, neurological change, and she specialized in that. And she says, guys, throw smart goals out the window. Smart goals, it, it, can, it can work, but it's not going to work the whole time. Because all it does for somebody is it makes them think of the outcome and the outcome only. You have to go further than that, and you have to recognize that action is going to overcome any sort of outcome to ultimately keep someone motivated. So it's those daily actions, those weekly action items that you do one at a time in order to feel like you're now compounding and stacking habits to lead to that outcome. Because I I find when she said that, it's true. Sometimes we might have too specific of a goal. Where whether we reach it or not, we still feel like a failure based off of all the things we might have already done to lead up to it. Yeah, and then you get to your goal and then what? 
Then what? So now, you know, a bigger goal? Yeah, or relapse. I I love this because it's all based on the idea of process and your identity. Because that's what you become remembered for. You know, you develop a process that's unique to you that you've discovered that works for you. Um, You you know, you want to embrace health and wellness and go out and, you know, hike and run up and down hills with November Project or, you know, take up boxing or strength training when you discover that thing you know, that you love to do, that, that you can get into flow state with and turn it into a process, um, it's okay to say, hey, you know, I'm you know, 45 years old or I'm 28 and I'm going to go out and run my first 10K and I have an idea of uh, you know, maybe I want to do, a, I don't know, a 5K in 25 minutes or 28 minutes and you, you, know, you pick a training template and you work towards that and you... Uh, you know, you discover this process of how many miles or kilometers a week and how many, you know, regen days, recovery days, rest days, and you change your diet, you buy the best shoes, and then you fail. And and as long as you're willing to accept, well, do I want to be remembered for, I didn't get my 28-minute 10 or 5K, but you know what? I created this process. Yeah. And it made me feel good. I have energy. I get up in the morning. You know, I'm... Uh, I have mental clarity, I have cognitive function. Boom, now I can go out with all this extra energy and just do shit. And it has nothing to do whether you crushed your, your goal. It's, so I think you're correct that having a very specific goal is, you know, can be dangerous. Um, but if you do have a specific goal and you fail at that goal, uh, you got to tell yourself, now I'm a professional. Because now, as long as you've learned from that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, I got to 56 in a real, real unique way. I could have hired a personal trainer, <laughs> yeah. um, and it would have been interesting. Yeah. I asked one fellow who's a friend of mine, who's very well known in the industry, how do I do this? Yeah. And he said, I don't know, run a lot of <laughs> stairs and put a weight vest on. Yeah. Um, do you know? You just got to do it. Squats and getting, you know, being able to squat with three hundred pounds and strength endurance. So you could, I don't know if that would work. And mm-hmm. um, skipping with a vest and lunging with a vest and plyometrics. Like it's just so odd. Yeah, all these other extra factors that come into play when you're like, whoa, it's really down to a science. I, I just, I, I love on your end, Stephen. You're like, well, I got to show up and I got to start somewhere, right? Going back to your five k example, it's like, well. Okay, if your goal is 5K at a particular time, first run 5K, see what you got. And then after, do it again, do half. Now see if you can beat, let's say, half of that time. Can you do it in less? Okay, now, it's like, it's the cliche saying, just get your reps in, right? So you want to be a fighter. Okay, show up to the gym, train. First show me you could show up for six months. Like, just show up. I think think it's the hardest thing for some people. It's so easy to say you're going to do it, but just... You have to show up. You have to start somewhere, right? You know, that's, just, that's like the, the one thing. Like habit number one, show up on time and come to all three to four of your workouts this week. That's it. We'll talk nutrition later. Let's just, let's first get you in the gym. And, and I, I talked about this with clients where I was like, if you struggle even with that, because let's be honest, some people do. Some people struggle with that. You show up, you're like, what do I do now? Just go on the treadmill, you know, what workouts do I do? I just, you know what I like to say? I'm like, show up to the gym and don't, don't book the hour. Tell yourself you're going to go for five minutes. Even if you don't get a workout in, that's fine. Yeah, I think the first the, week, just show up. 
the investment part of what you're talking about, I think people need to reframe. They need to understand that fitness or wellness is an investment. It's like you're putting money in your bank account of wellness. So whether it's physical fitness, whether it's spiritual fitness, or whether it's social fitness, it doesn't matter. Because it's, you know, it's hard for where do people start? Well, I want to change my health patterns. I want to move more, eat better, and regenerate better. You know, sleep, you know, de-stress, meditate. So I could start with the fitness circle. Or maybe not. Uh, maybe I need a purpose or reason to get fit. So let's you know, look at our passion circle. You know, what am I grateful for? What gifts do I have? What meaningful goals do I have in life? And would I be able to achieve those goals if I had better physical fitness? Um, so you know, you, it may, it's that motivation to get you into the gym. But it, you have to, you know, speaking to people that want to improve their wellness, two things. The first thing, anything that you do is an investment in your wellness bank account. It's not a workout. It's not. You know, if you get committed to a process and a routine and you can stick with that for six years, two years, five years, you're adding quality of life in the moment that you're doing it and for longevity. You know, you're going to live longer. You're not going to end up in a healthcare system where like a car in a garage that needs to be fixed with, you know, in acute care with, you know, chronic disease, cancer, diabetes. You know, you're keeping yourself out of the sick care, reactive healthcare system that we have. It's not even a healthcare system. It's not. They're not, if they were truly caring for your health, they would take the second most important lesson. And that is the body can't go or the mind won't take it. You need to first invest in mental health. You can't wait for bad things to happen to you in life. You can't. That's why I'm, I'm so passionate about trying to teach people this new idea of proactive mental health or this new idea of resilience. Because it's, it's so simple. Um, you know, my definition of resilience is three areas of health. Your spiritual health, your social health, your physical health. That's your core. You've got to make that strong. You can start in any one of those three areas and build off. And then you've got to move that core forward in life knowing that life is not a straight line. It's not. Just accept that reality. That whatever you do to make your core strong and however you move that forward, it will not be a straight line and if you do that and if you practice deep gratitude every day all the little things yesterday I'm driving with my car 9am a freak storm hits it's like zero degrees out super windy the rain and the snow's coming down sideways I'm on white mud I can barely keep my SUV on the highway and I realized when I get to Wolf Willow Stairs it's sheltered it's in a ravine and I, I was already practicing gratitude then it's going to be easier to run down the stairs and drive in my car. Um, and it worked. You know, it, it, doing stairs is hard, but even practicing that deep gratitude every day. So make your core strong, move forward in life knowing it's not a straight line. And if you practice deep gratitude every day, I promise you, you will discover something beautiful about life or yourself. I promise Everyone listening today, you move forward in life. Just make your core strong a little bit every day. Realize life in a straight line and you practice deep gratitude. You will get a gift of beauty. 
You'll learn something beautiful about life for yourself. I, I say that 100% without any hesitation. I promise you that gift. It, you become so much more appreciative of like everything that you throw yourself at and everything that gets thrown back at you when you have that that mindset that's that's beautiful Stephen. especially like i love the mind won't the body won't take you where your mind won't go and i i've experienced that at first hand this past week when <laughs> i needed to motivate myself running 12k in uh minus 23 weather with wind chill and i just remember i put this on my instagram story i felt very like liberated and i wanted to share it and all i said was I was honest with my audience, and I'm trying to do that a little bit more on social media. I find I, we have a chance to be more real, especially during this time. And I've been sharing just little snippets of, oh, yeah, you know, I'm running, running a marathon, and that's what I want to choose to do during this lockdown. That's my goal, and I'm making the actionable items every day to get it done. And I remember just coming out on video, and I'll share this with you because I find it, it really did. Just saying it out loud made me appreciate what I was doing more. And I just said, you know what, guys? I hate running. And that's why I was asking you earlier if you, if you dislike it. I, I actually, truthfully, I dislike it. I've never, I've never wanted to joyfully run. However, yes, on another tangent, I'll be honest, going into the 8, 9, 10, 11th kilometer in that weather, you almost start to get in this, like, this state where you're you're no longer you anymore you're you're in this like animalistic type behavior of like that's on and a part of you enjoys it especially when it's that cold and you're out in the ravine and you're running with the boys and you just you really feel part of the pact now that aside i just had to say if it weren't for all the things i'd be so appreciative of now i wouldn't put myself in in this position of running i I run and I dislike it, so I appreciate more the things that I have right now in my life. I've got, a, I've got a warm bed. I've got food on my plate. I've got a beautiful home to go to and family around me. But that, that's, all, that's all pretty. That's all, that's all life of a prince. I, in this lockdown, there's got to be something other than just a financial deficit I've experienced that's got to make me feel like little bit more like rooted and that was just running outside in the cold like that and i remember oh like i went out there i was ready it's like all right let's let's face this damn ugly cold breeze and and let's let's run through it so i could feel a little bit more human right now and when my one of my striking coaches <laughs> i asked him i'm like what's the one percent coach what's one percent tangible thing i could do for me to feel more like a mutt because he's easy. I love the way he says it. He's like, you and your brother. He's like, Kenny, you and your brother. You guys are, you guys are like these, uh, what's the word he used? Why can't I remember it right now? He said something along the lines of comparing us to like, oh, purebreds. Mm. He's like, you guys are purebreds. But he's like, you need to feel more like a mutt. <laughs> I said, what do I, well, what's one thing I could do, coach, to be more like a mutt? I could tell. He's like, okay, shit. He's like, Kenny? He's like, you got to be more miserable. Get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you got to. He's like, take it all. He's like, maybe you do this, maybe you don't. He's like, go live down on the other end of the street by yourself. Put your phone away. 
be by yourself. No more mom and dad. No more oh, happy family. He's like, I, I could tell you got a great family, but he's like, you got to go out there and you got to know what it's like to, to really survive. And now, like, subconsciously, I realize, I'm like, that's me running in the freaking cold, you know? Yeah, getting out of your comfort zone is, uh, because, you know, we live in a society where it's designed to make us feel comfortable, everything. You know, likes on social media, the perfect world, um, you know, processed food, um, Cooper and I went for a walk this morning and he said something very powerful about, you know, young people and so many choices have been made for young people. Like there's not a lot of opportunity if you're young to have an idea or feel like your idea is worth anything or it's just so hard. And so getting outside of your comfort zone, we're in that right now with COVID. And earlier on I talked about, again, I don't mean disrespect to healthcare authorities that are you know, putting out the COVID alerts and and dealing with um, very very tough strange situations within our healthcare system, but they have our attention right now, and it, and it kind of it <clears throat> pisses me off when I when I hear these uh, psychologists talk about it's okay if you gain twenty pounds, your surge capacity is at its limit. All surge capacity means is your mental and physical ability to deal with stuff is at its limit. So go ahead, let yourself go. Say, wait a minute, time out. That's not functional psychology. We know that if you're isolated and if you're stressed out and if you have anxiety, we know that as a baseline, one of the things that can improve your mental well-being is just to move. Eat a good meal, go out for a walk, get some fresh air, do some exercise. And, you know, my wife is absolutely brilliant. She doesn't have a university education. She was a bartender, bar manager for her entire life. But she watches all these, watches all these COVID alerts on TV, and it stresses her out and drives her nuts. And she is as smart as a um, neuroscientist that has studied in behavioral neuroscience for 20 years. Because she says... Why don't all these doctors say, why don't they just give us a shit sandwich going, we have news, it's going to suck. But before we tell you about that news, here's 20 good things you can do today. Zoom a friend, you can't get, you know, or reach out to someone and do something to help another person. You know, do something good for yourself, move your body. Um, Here's some sleep, you know, here's 20 good things you can do. By the way, here's the bad news. And then... Give them the other part of the sandwich. Here's another 20 good things you can do. Yep. That would be true health care. And, and there's none of that. There's, well, there's a little bit of that. We're starting to see, you know, the Text for Hope program, but there's very little innovation because having given you the shit sandwich, it's like what you said earlier. You know, the three elements of behavioral change. You need social incentive, and it's got to be you know, positive, not a negative thing. Mm-hmm. You need your immediate reward. That's got to be a positive thing, not a... And it's sad that they're going on TV and, and showing people the horrid side, you know, how people are dying of COVID. It's not working. Fear as a motivation, Yeah, it's just not working. And it's an easy thing to do, 
Um, but we need more innovation and more creativity from the people at the top. We need more leadership and going, look, people, you know, we have your attention. You're out of your comfort zone. Your mental health is going to be hammered. Here's, this is an opportunity. Well, my friend Andrew Ross and I went running about a month ago with a friend, Lizina, that was doing her first 26K, her first marathon. And Andrew, <laughs> I said, it. Andrew, what's your definition of resilience? <laughs> and he said, it's, you know, that beautiful constraint. It's trying to turn adversity into something good. And there's all these psychologists out there that are going, you know, no, it's okay to let yourself go. I, I, I just can't agree with that. So much of the language that's being used, Stephen, is don't do this. Don't go there. Don't, don't, don't. And I don't know about you, but I personally... If I get someone who I care about in my life and cares about me keeps yapping away at what I don't, 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 should not do, I'm more likely to do it. Let's just let's face the facts. It's 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 flip the language. Hey, do this. Yeah. Do that. Do talk to your friends online. Do exercise every day for 30 minutes. Here's some great exercises you can do every single day. Oh, do drink more water. Here's how you can build your immune system. Do this. And I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, those the tangible list as opposed to ensuring society goes about the new ways of living by creating this fear response is not, it's not healthy. Yeah, even if, if you look at biohackers, I'm a biohacker. So we can take this conversation to like high-level fitness training um, and really understanding some of the true uh, underpinnings of what biohacking means. Um, so, you know, having a cup of coffee is biohacking. Having fish oil is biohacking. You know, going into Pivotal Fitness and, you know, walking into the, the cold hot therapy room and, you know, dunking yourself in, you know, zero degree water and freezing for three minutes and going into boiling water and going back and forth. The contrast. contrast fast. Yeah. You know, that's biohacking. But one of the biggest biohacks in the world, if you're thinking about mitochondrial health and movement, is just to move. I know you're in the fitness industry. I have friends, you know, I'd say 50% of my friends are trainers nice. who I respect a lot. But the fitness industry, this is where Stephen becomes a little bit of the shit disturber. <laughs> I'm all ears, please. I'm going to be honest with you. I love debatable topics. The, the fitness industry has created, they, all, they mean well. There's variability. There's coaching. You do need to be coached. You need to be motivated. You need to be shown stuff to do. But from a biohacking perspective and mitochondrial health, the best training a human being can do is sit training. Submaximal intensity interval training. Think farmer. Think construction worker. Think maybe even doctor who's on his feet all day. If you're just moving your body all day, if it's every hour on the hour, you get up and do something for five to ten minutes. Go for a walk. Do some push-ups. Do a wall sit. Do some body weight squats. You know, do a, a little bit of something for five or ten minutes. Six hours a day doesn't require a gym. Just start. Yeah. Your longevity will be five to seven years better than some someone who works out with intensity three days a week in a gym, because fitness culture has promoted this thing called hip training. Right, high intensity interval training. It should only really be done once, 
maybe twice a week. If you're doing it more than that, you're destroying your mitochondria. Yeah. You are re-expressing your genetic material for longevity in a bad way. Overtraining. So the fitness industry, even though it means well and the culture has provided this unattainable level where you know, mass population says, there's no way I can do that. There's no way I can go and crush one of these hit workouts or jump on my Peloton bike and race other people. And you know what? You don't have to. Just start moving your body. Understand the benefits of sit training. Go for a walk, walk your dog, play hockey with your kids, shoot some hoops, do whatever, get a bag, throw some punches at a bag. Yeah. And eventually, you're going to get bored. You're going to go, hey, Kenny... I've been doing this sit thing for know, 18 months now. I'm bored as fuck. And that's a common occurrence for I am people bored. who start to train. Very and big so common occurrence. Give me some ideas. This is what I'm interested in. And then that's where I think people, trainers in the fitness industry, have a real opportunity to take their knowledge and expertise and to grow the passion, the motivation, and the desire for people to have that variability in their life that reward variability they're going to need to keep moving through life and just keep, you know, improving their wellness a little at a time. So I think the fitness industry just needs to listen to some advice and maybe start with sit. Yeah, start somewhere. And get people moving because, you know, 75, 80% of Canadians, we're not doing enough from a movement perspective, from a nutrition perspective to positively increase our wellness. We're not doing it. The, the numbers are so low. I feel like something you'll be happy to hear, Stephen, depending on how much you know about this on, uh, you know, how we are operating as trainers at Good Life, especially with what we've adopted recently, um, you know, taking years of research and, and, and investing heavily in education on what training looks like now for anybody is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention my personal take on it. It's viewed as how you would view starting a martial art. You need to indoctrinate the element of a white belt. Have that white belt mentality. If, if you're going to go anywhere and start training, yeah, starting with the sit level of training you talked about, fantastic, because it's a great starting point. Don't expect to get under a bar and squat 45 plate each side the way your friends are saying they're doing it. Maybe your friends have been training for years more than you have, or they're, they're months ahead of where you're at. And what I love is, we, we filter through anyone, anyone. It's kind of like a requirement. Everyone, depending on how long they're in it for, it depends on their growth, is putting them through something called a skill, skill acquisition phase. And that's simply just me telling them, hey, I'm going to walk you through six primal movements on how you need to functionally move as a human being. And it's going to start off very basic. You're not even going to... You'd be lucky if you sweat, but I need you to understand that I got to teach you how to move properly mm-hmm. before we actually load some weight, before we actually spike up that heart rate. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, you, you learn how to crawl before you learn how to walk and you learn how to walk before you learn how to run. Right now I get it. You want to run because you know, running is going to burn those calories and turn you 20 pounds less and make you look grand for your brother's wedding coming up. Mm-hmm. However, don't want you to be in more pain, and I want this to eventually be fun. So what we're going to do is I'm going to teach you how to move all over again. And I'm going to need your patience, and I'm going to need your, your willpower. 
And when you get people on board with that, when you provide that level of intention, for the most part, they're on board. And it's just, it's exciting to get a taste, Stephen, of seeing, because again, let's be honest, in any industry, there's trainers who are going to do it that way. And unfortunately, there's a sad, there's a reality of, hey, there's good cops, there's bad cops, right? Well, hey, there's great trainers, there's crappy trainers, Oh, as long as I get their shirt completely soaked up and ready and, oh, they got their workout in. Well, I mean, yeah, sure, that's all fun and games, but you can't keep doing that to their body because, again, going back to incremental progression, make them feel like they're going on this linear approach of, okay, I get why I need to learn that movement to do it now in several different ways. Well, this is like, the, I think this is a much more important conversation that, than you may even have con- contemplated. So my vision of healthcare, if I was the premier of Alberta, um, there's two phone calls I can get from my healthcare minister. One phone call could look like this. We're at capacity. We don't have enough rooms in our hospital. Let's roll 10 years down the road when our aging population through chronic disease is going to stress out the healthcare system six to 10 times what we're experiencing right now with COVID. So COVID is a wake-up call. If you look at the institution of health metrics and um, all the institutions out there that are looking at how we're keeping people alive longer, but they're sicker at the end of their life, they have several chronic diseases that need to be managed, that all takes resources, doctors, hospitals. Um, In eight to 10 years, there's gonna be a problem bigger than COVID. So the premier of Alberta might get a phone call that says, we don't have enough hospitals. We don't have enough doctors. This is a problem. We're at our capacity. That's one phone call. To me, that's not a healthcare system. That is a reaction sick care system. A better phone call that the premier could get is, hey, this is Kenny. I, I run the wellness care system in Alberta. We're running out of gyms. Yeah. We're, we're running out of fitness equipment. We're running out of trainers. We need more investment in real estate where people can just move. We need more parks. We need more trails. We need more parents need more time to spend with their kids. They need incentives where they can take a day off of, you know, or a half uh, an afternoon, a half a day of work off to go bum around with their kids. Yeah. This is the type of healthcare system that we need to prevent this collapse that many predict will happen in eight to ten years. We're going backwards. Where it's just our healthcare system as you know it today that was born out born out of pharmacology. Again, no disrespect, because I'm a cancer survivor. And I wouldn't be alive today if it weren't for the intervention of my surgeons, my doctors, my healthcare team. I would not be alive today. But as I said earlier, I never wanted to be a cancer patient. I didn't want my mom to die of cancer. I don't want any of my friends to have to experience chronic disease unnecessarily. Some of us will because we're born with congenial defects. What I'd rather see is, you know, for those of us who can take care of ourselves and reduce our health care or sick care footprint, we're freeing up resources for the researchers and the doctors to help the people that do have the rare diseases or people that do get in accidents because they're moving through life and they're skiing down a hill and something bad happened or they're just interfacing with their environment and something bad happened. 
And and this is a real important conversation, especially for millennials and for OK Boomers or you know Gen Z, because um, people of my age, baby Boomers, I mean we've done a really shitty job, haven't we? We've screwed up the earth, <laughs> right? We've created, um, made it really expensive for young people to go to school. All of this debt and education. We have a healthcare system that really isn't a healthcare system. Uh, we haven't empowered young people to go forward and, you know, create the future that they need. And 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 so, it will be that generation, you know, the self-care generation of of Gen Z and millennials, that are going to adopt all these problems. And unless we can motivate them to, to start to truly take care of their own wellness and build up their own resilience over time, their mental resilience, their spiritual resilience, their physical, their social resilience. If we don't do that, you and I, in eight to ten years from now, we'll be in another lockdown where it's our healthcare system has collapsed, there's no virus, it's if you have a heart attack, if you have an injury, don't come to the hospitals, chronic disease is at its max. And you know what the worst part of this is? In 10 years from now, if you're 60, 70 years old and you're entering the healthcare system with chronic disease, your kids are going to be the ones taking care of you. What's going to happen to their life? Done. It's right off. They're going to have to take care of you. Yeah. So, so at some point in time... You screwed it over for yourself and your kids. Yeah. So I see COVID as, as um, you know, a very cruel but necessary wake-up call. And I see this conversation as one that I hope inspires people to realize the body can't go where the mind won't take it. We need to rethink mental health. Mental health, you know, there's two parts, two sides to mental health. And right now we're only experiencing the reactive side, which is no different than the, the clinical physical healthcare system where we're reacting to people getting sick. And we're not, you know, inspiring empowerment care or self-care and preventing people from going into... And so right now, mental health is reactive. There are people that are suffering from mental illness, from loneliness. We need to now promote proactive mental health. And that is, what are the things we can do to build up our resilience? And And it, we don't need to become unbreakable. We don't need to be thinking about going back to the old normal, but we do need to start to understand the power of all the little things that we can do. What a wake-up call indeed. I, that, that really strikes a lot of chords for me because it makes you so much more aware of why we need to be doing what we're doing. Um, you know, what I'm doing is, of course, I'm now a huge advocate for looking after your health and fitness and making it priority number one, COVID or no COVID. And you really emphasized something there, Stephen, that I'd like to share. When nurses right now are saying that this is such a big deal to the point that if, if, if people keep getting sick and show up to the hospital and they're at capacity, there's no longer room for those who have been prior to COVID and still are going through chronic illnesses that have nothing to do with the virus. But now when you are dealing with individuals who are getting tested positive and are going through COVID 
and you have to supply and ensure you're giving enough time and attention to individuals with chronic diseases, you can't save everybody. And that's the saddest reality right now is nothing hit me more when I was reading a caption on Instagram and a nurse was saying, there was a car accident today like there is every other day. And we couldn't help save a particular individual's life who got in that accident because we have to currently right now at the time, it stands that we need to prioritize everyone with the coronavirus illness. That that individual who got in the accident could have gotten their life saved, but they needed to be down on the list. So this person was saying, listen, guys, like just do your part, stay healthy, you know, do what you need to do, right? But for me, I'm a big believer in if all individuals who are getting it and are dying from it, unfortunately, are being affected by it, were to or start today looking after their health with your sit approach, with moving in your house for 15, 30 minutes a day instead of just laying on the couch watching Netflix all day, you will be a part of that 1% in not ending up in the hospital and in getting it and in most likely not experiencing such severe symptoms. And it's so unfortunate that it's now like a, it's like a fight for survival. It's like, goddamn, like, it's like a, me and you and us against the world. And it's, it's so sad that it's come down to the point where it's like, we can't just forget about everyone else who unfortunately, yeah, gets cancer over. It wasn't their fault. And we still need to make sure there's room for those individuals to, to ensure that we are taking after them. And I'm not saying, and there's a whole other subject too, Stephen, but long story short, another sad thing is when like someone gets COVID and all of a sudden they, they look, they're looked at as a disease. You know, a young millennial gets COVID. Oh, you effed up. Oh, you got COVID. What were you doing that you weren't supposed to? Yeah, there, there's been a lot. It's, it's been hard crazy. for people to navigate. Um, all the information from the start of this. I mean, they were, you know, the rules were being made up as we went along. But here's here's two rules that you cannot argue. Um, two two observations. Number one, you're correct. I mean, cancer diagnoses are down thirty percent simply because people aren't going in. So we know people are still. You know, cancer rates aren't actually down. Yeah. But thirty percent of cancers aren't being detected. Um, but this really, this story shouldn't be a clinical story. It's not the reason why nurses become nurses and doctors become doctors. They truly do want to care for people, and yet people are seen as patients, and patience means, means to end suffering as opposed to how do I help a human being. The, 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 the biggest lesson or story out of COVID goes like this. At the, as we approach the end of our life, um, we don't want to die alone, A. So when my mom died of cancer, I had you know less than a two-minute phone call from, with her in San Diego. I was down in La Jolla going to high school, and she said, Mom, Mom's going to be okay. She knew she was going to die. She had massive brain tumors that had spread quickly. She said, take care of your brother. And those were her final words. So she died the next day. But when I got to Vancouver General and I talked to the surgeon and said, well, if mom ever comes, if she ever becomes conscious because she's had brain seizures, uh, will she recognize us? Will she know who we are? 
if she does live for three to six months, will she be, will she be a vegetable? Like, you know, a lot of people are experiencing this with COVID right now with their loved ones in the hospital. They can't be there to care for them. And many of them are dying alone. So ask yourself this question. At the end of your life, is that how you want to die? Alone? That it's, the process of death, is, that's not what people fear. They don't fear death itself. They fear the process of dying. If you die and there's no one there to care for you. That's the hard part of death. And COVID has become such a clinical, economical thing that we're forgetting about the culture of healthcare or wellness. And it's not something that's designed to save money. It's not a clinical thing. It's our elders. At the end of their life, the last five or ten years of their life, one of the things they can be doing and should be doing is telling their life story. The stuff that they learned to us, to the younger generation. That's not happening. That was not happening pre-COVID because of chronic disease. You know, parents, grandparents hooked up to machines, spending the last two, three, five years of their life on ventilators, taking all this medication to treat all of these intertwined chronic diseases Is that really, is that what we've become as a society? That's what we're set up for. That sucks. That's not what the human race is all about. We're all about inspiring each other and sharing stories. So that's when I said, dude, your job uh, for someone in the wellness industry is as important as people in healthcare because the thing that you share in common is you recognize that. Yeah. You really want to help people in all parts of their life, and especially people at their end of the life. You want, you know, making them feel like their life was worth living, and anything that they can pass on, uh, you know, might inspire the next generation to go on and do some great shit. I really appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, that personal experience there, Stephen. I, I can't imagine how, you know, hard that is to relive that moment. You know, it's not an easy phone call to, to have. It was you know? hard. I mean, the mindset, I was 16 yeah. years old at the time, Still and all I thought about was, and, and, it, and it was how a 16-year-old would think, is will my mom recognize us, my brother and I, my uncle, my aunts, our family. And what I failed to recognize is uh, maybe she died alone. Maybe she died not knowing that we were going to be okay. That sucks. Like that, that, I, I realized this in the last year through COVID. When, I, when you see all these people on, in hospitals and their loved ones, loved ones couldn't be there for them, it really hit home. And so that fueled my passion for what we're trying to do with our Sunflower Project to inspire people to... Uh, wellness through proactive resilience for understanding that resilience you know we're not springs human mm. beings aren't springs yep. human beings aren't cancer survivors we weren't born to be remembered for 2020 as people who survived COVID we're not we were born to be so much more than that we all have a gift and we were born to figure out what that gift is and at some point in our life use it to help others 
And then at the end of our life, we realize, shit, that was a good life. Yeah. There's something to look That's back human. on proudly. Yeah. Going back to your point about no matter what age you are and you're ready to go, you want to recount those memories and, and relive them all over again through the stories you can share with people who are right by your bedside. You know, like that's that's just documenting the journey in its very last moments. And you are going to recall the most special ones. There's beauty in the struggle. You know. There's beauty in the death. It, I'd love for you to share, Stephen, um, how much your documentary is going to create a a large impact on resiliency in its truest form and people getting a better understanding of what resiliency is. I, I'd love for you to just uh, give us an understanding of, of what you can share about this documentary now, what its purpose is, and uh, the, the the big project and plan with it uh, regarding that big image and everything <clears throat> that you visually showcase to me. I want our audience to get an idea of what's coming through the pipeline in 2021. Well, it was, um, 2020 was definitely a weird year, yep. you know, to set out in March to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not really gonna, uh, try to push water up the hill and let COVID dictate, you know, not, not again, no disrespect to all the businesses that were able to reinvent themselves. We, we just weren't there yet. We were pre-revenue. We weren't a hundred percent with our solution. We were about 99%. Yep. So climb stairs. Plant flowers. Love it. <laughs> that was it. And then hang out with my wife, the most beautiful person in the world, and the joy that the flowers brought to our backyard. And Love I like, dude, if you go onto my Swag Mug account, look at my photographs, it's insane. Yeah. Like the photographs that I've taken of these sunflowers. And I people, saw some of them. They're beautiful. Thank you. People who know me as a November Project lifestyle photographer know I love to get into flow. Yeah. If you're you're running up and down a hill, I'm sprinting faster than you. <laughs> it's a competition cam- right away. With a camera, and it's going to be in your face, and you're going to be going, what the fuck, he's that old, and he's running faster than me up the hill. With a 10-pound camera? To try to get the shot. So there I am out in the garden trying to get the shot with all of the different variable lighting conditions. And so an entire summer of shooting tens and thousands of photos and trying to find the best sunflower photo and practicing gratitude every day. And then how the sunflowers would inform my stair climbing. And then I saw the variability in the sunflowers and I realized, shit, I got to go run Commonwealth Stadium and I just can't run Wolf Willow and I got to, you know, go on walks with my wife and there has to be variability in my training because the sunflower said so. Yeah. <laughs> Listen and, to how it's growing based off your own growth. And right? then I couldn't do this alone. Like there's, there's, uh, the, the, the documentary will show sunflowers, you know, a tall sunflower with a big head. Of course it's going to droop over. You know, and people wonder, well, why does the head droop over? Well, because it's really heavy. (laughs) Like, you cut these things, they weigh 10 or 20 pounds, and they're on this super thin stock. And then you look at these other sunflowers where there's five or six of them, and they grow super tall, and there's three or four on the left and three or four on the right side, and the wind starts blowing, and they're almost like balancing each other out. And so that's why I love our croissant run club where we were... We get together Sunday morning. Some of us run 10K, some run 20K. And so, you know, I'm working out with, with friends, not unlike you. So there's that lesson that it's lonely at the top unless you bring others with you. Oh, it's so much more motivating. And then eh? you have balance. And then yeah. you have 
you know, dimension and you, you get to hear other stories which motivates you. So there's all these stories of resilience which are really unique. The gratitude story, the story of small wins, um, the story of variability, you need variability in your life, the story of you know, discovering something beautiful. And that happened to me towards the end of the summer. We, our house was surrounded by hundreds of the most beautiful sunflowers. And I That's must awesome. have been taking a nap one afternoon and my wife goes, hey, <clears throat> there's these two kids and their dad and they're in our yard and the kids are like blown away by these sunflowers. <clears throat> and I'm like, what? So I go out there and there's these two kids and they're looking at these sunflowers like they're the most amazing things they've <laughs> ever seen. Appreciation for nature right there. You don't and see so, that often from kids. Yeah, nowadays. so I'm thinking amazing parents. Who are these parents? So I cut them some sunflowers and took their picture. Didn't bother getting their coordinates. Just off they went. So the doc, part of the documentary will be, how do I find these kids? I know they live in Grandview. So, you know, knocking door to door. You know, have you seen these three kids? Got, and they brought their little brother. Was in the, they were cycling through the neighborhood and, you know, they had one of those carriers. And they, There's a story to it. And so I'm going to walk around Grandview with this photo. And I want to give them a sunflower print. And so we're going to do that throughout the rest of the winter and the spring. We're going to just give people these beautiful sunflower prints. They're not going to expect it. And then to take the idea of children and how they have to learn about resilience. Children and parents. And teach them what new resilience means. That we don't have to bounce back. We're not springs. Um, that there's some vulnerability and resilience. It's okay to fail. That's a win. And we're going to create a toolbox. Um, but part of that, the toolbox will be to teach them the resilience, but then we need the experience. So I got this crazy idea of taking one of the awesome sunflower images and blowing it up the size of two soccer fields. So yeah. imagine you're standing on high-level bridge, staring at it down at Kinsman, and you see the largest fine art print in the world. It's going to be huge. So take one image, size it up, you know, cut it into a thousand four-by-six-foot images, prints, and assemble the largest print and have children from every school build that print and photo, like, videotape it so you can see the sunflower build and at the end of it, once it's built, then they get to take away a piece of this huge sunflower, take it back to their school, and then turn it into an art project where they can, almost becomes like a seed. Mm -hmm. They can tell their own story wow. of resilience in their own unique way, yep. and then share it with the world. So this thing just doesn't stop growing. And that's how 2020 will be remembered, um, that Edmonton, built the world's largest sunflower, the world's largest print, and, and every family had an opportunity to participate with their children and teaching them how to become more resilient, how to bend, how to adapt, how to be creative, how to, how to discover uh, meaning in life, um, purpose, how to be grateful, how to understand the value of you know, true social health and having relationships that matter which isn't happening right now, and then how to take care of themselves. All of this will be uh, put into this documentary. 
That is beautiful. It's crazy. That is so cool. It, it, <laughs> and it was unplanned. It, that was the cool part. The, the it re- started off with you and your wife joking around that you guys are going to grow a couple of sunflowers in the backyard. And now look what it turned into. Hey, and it's hey, beautiful. I want to ride my bike to Wolf Hollow. I haven't been able to do that. COVID's going to let me do that. It, that. That's something I want to touch on is it's so... It's like... It's a breath of fresh air to hear someone finally and actually say, you know what, it's okay. It's okay to not innovate. Innovation's great, but due to what happened, if you needed a stop, what was almost close to even being finished, and just live a life that COVID demands you to live, and that's doing the things that you always said you wish you had more time to do, and now you finally do, do it. You got no one calling you, trying to demand your attention anymore. It's okay if you stop. It's okay if you ever stop anyway, COVID or no COVID, because it just goes to show, look at the beauty and unplanned memories that end up turning into a soon-to-be profound world's largest documentary surrounding sunflower seeds. And it it just goes to show, I could tell, yes, this is going to happen. It's only a matter of time. And it's something that you were just doing out of the soul goodness of, I want to do this because I can. And, and I have the ability to do so. Well, the beauty of it was, I mean, oh, you know, I talked about gratitude. And, you know, my wife and I don't have a lot. Everyone, all my close friends know that we're not, we're not motivated by money. You know, getting through cancer and being able to work with iHuman and help lead a team that give gave traumatized youth uh, a home that was pretty cool and being part of a, a wellness community and November project and just, you know, that that's life fulfilling enough for us. And so we're extremely grateful for the smallest things. And, you know, we took some risk in that. And, and uh, you know, I promise you that if you move forward in life with gratitude and work, you know, keep your core strong, yeah. that there'll, that there'll be that gift of beauty. But a, a buddy of mine, close buddy of mine, Cody, um, you know, their family's gone through some t- difficulties in the last five years. He lost his mom, lost his brother years ago, a few years pre- previous, lost his dad. Um, and, and, you know, now he's with his daughter and there's some stuff going on there. And he shared this beautiful video of his daughter, uh, Adela, um, which contributed to the idea of the sunflower where she, mm. she's in her backyard and... Uh, made me cry, made everyone cry on, on Instagram that saw it. And she has this uh, balloon, obviously with helium and a note attached to it, to her grandma and her uncle and her grandpa that went off up into heaven. Aww. And so it gave me that perspective of here's a child and the power of story from a child. And so really building this sunflower was inspired from, you know, from the power of children. Like children are naturally resilient because they're curious. They're so curious and honest. Yes, because they're hopeful. <laughs> yep. Because they're creative. It sucks to know as adults we reach a point where we let go of that. Yeah. Or if we allow if we allow for it to let go. That childlike wonder, there's beauty in that. You know, that same level of hope and that same level of honesty and rawness that comes with that. Keep it. And the da- the danger is they're, they're losing it because of, you know, some of the uh, bad side effects of the bad dopamine they get through social media. So we're fighting to uh, you know, regain 
that youthful mindset of just being curious, of being creative, of exploring life and, and not being afraid to go down a path and fail or succeed. And, uh, you know, we should do that from the day we're born to the day we die. I don't know why we stop. I do. I you know we yeah. try to please other people. And, yep, it happens. And, and it happens. So I, I, we're excited. We think uh, I can't even own it. I don't, you know, this, the Sunflower Project, I don't even know what to call it. Um, I, f- I feel very much like it's part of a shared thing. It just happened. Yeah. When can we expect, based off of your, I know it's in the process of being built, just for our listeners out there to tune in, when can we have an idea of launch date for sure, when you're thinking based off of uh, getting all of this sorted? Well, we're, we, we hope to start filming in January. We already have. I've awesome. already started shooting um, very high-quality footage this past summer. So we're going to recreate, you know, my bike rides in the winter to Wolf Willow. Uh, we'll be out probably. A little bit of acting, and you're probably we'll going to do it all over again. No, no, acting. There'll be one take. There'll be one take. Yeah, if, it's, if it's minus 20 and I'm on my bike and I'm driving to Wolf Willow, you guys just better capture it. Yeah, like, I already did this. And when I get to Wolf Willow and I'm trying to pound up 15, 20, 25 sets, you know, I'm not, I'm breathing for me, not for you guys. So yeah. we're, we're going to try to capture that and start. Uh, we have to build a toolkit for families. As we, as we shoot the documentary, so, you know, so there's four pieces to it. We need to, to document, uh, you know, giving people sunflower prints to cheer them up through this next five or six months of COVID. So start shooting in January, have a five-month shoot cycle, figure out, see how things go with the vaccine and whether we can... I'd like to do small pop-ups, smaller sunflowers. Yeah. Maybe the size of this room are twice as big, uh, you know, 20 by 30, 30 by 60 foot sunflowers, not two football fields and maybe... Yeah. Of an actual sunflower or a picture of? Pictures of. Pictures of, too right? smaller. Yeah. Not, you know, we don't have to go two football fields in size yeah. to start, start with. small, start small. And, yeah. and start getting it out there and, and start building get an army. Get some buzz. Yeah, get, uh, we're definitely going to need volunteers. Yeah. I've already figured out how to build a large sunflower. Um, so it's either going to happen late spring summer or i hope maybe going into 2021 you know the school year great something to kick off you know we're sort of at the end of the pandemic we now have um something that is positive that we got out of covid and then we can remember covid for that yeah you know at least for edmontonians of course and you know what to to give that level of hope and uh an element of something to look forward to through sunflowers in your story for our city is huge. That's, that's important too beautiful. to activate hope. Having something to look forward to yeah. that's part of resilience. Yeah. You need to have that's you know, Torba Van Gogh. Growing the sunflowers and doing a photograph or painting of myself in the sunflowers, that was an act of resilience. You know, knowing that in six months these damn things have to grow, so we have to do stuff every day, small stuff and <clears throat> Um, that was building resilience, growing flowers. Who thought of that? I love that. Stephen Chorba did. He I wonder what David, his wife. what would David think of that? <laughs> we'd have to, we'd have to, <laughs> we'd have to find out. I, I want to ask you something. Uh, you know, we have going in our last, you know, 10 or 15 minutes here to respect your time. Speaking of hope and, and giving people more of a inclination of where our health um, let's say leaders are taking um, <clears throat> taking the future of our 
of our people in our community in Alberta through Alberta Health Services, they included you as quote unquote a patient in their in their board to get hands on information and experience from how um, how your your experience in overcoming cancer look like and throughout from beginning to end what you went through how it went the good the bad the ugly everything in between and just respecting your opinion they they chose you out of i can't imagine thousands of people they could have sat with what what's coming of that what what are some good um you know tangible agenda items that you believe are already set in place that you can obviously legally and uh, hopefully share with our audience based off of them like being a set of ears being like Stephen, we, we need to hear from you how we did things and what what we missed what we need to keep doing the full nine yards well the one group that i'm working with irsm which is um irsm have you ever heard of them no. IRSM is the leading head and neck rehabilitation research <clears throat> maxillofacial reconstructive clinic in the world. Wow. So right here in Edmonton, um, IRSM um, works with not only head and neck cancer patients, but people that were born with um, congenial head and neck issues, um, people that have gotten in accidents, but primarily it's cancer. So I've spoken uh, worldwide. I've been fortunate enough to go down to San Francisco and other parts of the world um, Carolina, South, South Carolina, um, and, and they're not recognized in Edmonton, but they're recognized globally as a leader for dealing with people that have severe head and neck surgeries. And, and they're part of a partnership with Alberta Health Services, Covenant Health, and the U of A, U of A Research Faculty of Rehabilitative Medicine. So it's really cool that they approached me, oh, it was about two years ago to become, they have a board. So they have two people from AHS, two people from uh, Covenant Health, and two people from U of A Research. Um, and, and of course, the board chair is part of all that. And so they got this crazy idea of we really need to, to improve patient care. We really need to you know, get unstuck from our own expertise and experience from the clinical side because it's very asymmetrical, right? They don't... They needed the patient perspective. Um, so they, they reached out to a whole bunch of us. Unfortunately, they said, we want you on our board. Um, be a shit disturber. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold back. <laughs> and so I loved it. And so um, to try to help IRSM build capacity and help the other partners who, are, who support IRSM, um, not only maintain... Uh, the leadership the advantage they have globally. Like, if you understand what IRSM does, it's unbelievable. You know, my surgery was 14 hours long where they cut through your jaw, around your neck, down here. They peel your face off, pin it up there. They break your jaw, swing it open. So half your face is swung open. Oh, my goodness. And then they take part of your arm. They take the cancer out and use part of your arm. It's called the radial flap to margin, you know, to put... You know, muscle and tissue back to where they took the cancer out. And for me, it was my uh, bottom of my tonsil, my vocal cords. So I think 90% of my vocal cords are removed, but yet I can speak. Yeah. Um, so they're amazing at what they do. And what I was able to do, I think, the, was something called prehabilitative medicine. 
um, and maybe this is the reason why I'm on the board. 17 years ago, prior to my surgery, my radiation, and then 10 more surgeries, I decided that I was going to work out like an Olympic athlete prior to my surgery. I trained for my surgery. Dude, like it was crazy. That's nuts. My doctor said, Did you have to? Did you have to? You didn't have to. My doctor said, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. The trauma of the surgery is going to be so bad that none of this will help. Don't eat vitamins. I remember my, my radiation oncologist saying, you know, eating salads won't help. Lifting weights, strength training won't help. Well, guess what? It did. Not only did it help, but Australia has studied this worldwide, prehabilitated medicine for anyone doing any type of surgery, especially cancer, has incredible benefits in terms of better outcomes, better quality of life after cancer. So in a very fluky way, I became you know, the grandfather of prehabilitation. One of my doctors, uh, Dr. Williams, who's the head of surgery at the U of A, and I think he chairs the American College of Physicians, and Dr. Cycli, you know, probably the best vascular surgeon in the world. Both amazing human beings, unbelievable human beings, uh, at one of our first board meetings told me about a program that they were participating in two years ago called Strong for Surgery, Prehabilitation. It was basically everything I was doing 17 years ago. Yeah where they're trying to get their patients to create patterns of health prior to surgery. Strength training, diet, meditation, yoga, to reduce stress, knowing that they would get better outcomes from their surgery. So moving forward, we're currently now working on a strategic plan for IRSM, but the, the biggest thing that has surfaced is this idea of the importance of mental health. And they were so focused on the patient's mental health because it's really hard to motivate yourself when you're told you have cancer. It's your, your families and friends have a hard time supporting you. They can be there for you, but there's nothing they can do to you know, help your out- outcome. And yet what we've developed with PEPI is a tool that not only helps the cancer uh, patient prepare for this medical clinical onslaught, the same tool can be used by their friends and family. They need it. That was the aha moment. That all this prehabilitation stuff is the stuff that you're doing with your clients. We need to move more. Right. Strength endurance is good for, you know, all sorts of things. Um, you know, cognitive health down the road. Yep. Um, for muscles, sarcopenia, so our muscles don't waste away. Create more neuromuscular adaptation, that mind-body connection, that feedback, that inner loop, everything. So if you think of... of, of um, my perspective and the perspective of clinicians, they're going, yes, we, it's been proven now in the last 15 to 17 years that what you were doing has been researched and studied Australia. They're amazing at this. If you're just diagnosed with cancer in Australia, you are put on a pre-habilitation, pre-habilitation program. Good. You're in good hands. Where they get you, they, you know, a trainer, a nutritionist, a wellness coach prior to your cancer. Which thus enhances your ability to recover and survive. It increases, it improves return on investment on the clinical intervention and the quality of life after cancer. It's holistic. Right? So You're not missing any piece. My, big, my aha moment was, well, why wouldn't you have the friends and family? Why wouldn't the cancer patient be the spokesperson to say, you know what, I might die of cancer. I might survive. 
But please honor me and do this shit. Mm. Do the same shit that I'm doing. Yeah. And cancer all, or no cancer, do it. Just do it out of respect for me. Yeah. If, I, if I'm a mom or a dad and I don't survive, I don't want you getting any type of chronic disease. And so we're working through this strategic planning process. And, um, and I love that some of the clinicians at IRSM and some of the researchers have said, we need a mental health tool. Ah, uh, Emily, yes. Peppy. But guess what? Why does that tool have to be any different than the tool that the patients are using? Think about that. If you're a patient coming in and your life's just been massively complicated, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, your job, your family, if you're a mom and dad, how do you take care of your kids? What's going to happen to my business? Will I survive? Like you lose, it's like getting, you know, the, the mental trauma is so severe that you can't think for yourself. You know, your life purpose goes away and we train people on that. So it's like, well, wait a minute. The same thing that we're using to coach the mental health of the cancer patient, what's your, what are you grateful for? What gifts do you have? What are your meaningful goals bigger than cancer? Who's your support network, your tribe? Who do you trust? Yeah, who do you have in who your do you corner? Value? What are you doing with prehabilitation health to move every day, to make yourself stronger? The tool that we have is just as efficacious for cancer patients as it is family and friends, as it is for healthcare workers. So if I'm a doctor and I tell a patient, hey, you should do, uh, you should use the same, you know, you should do some resilience building, some training prior for your surgery, they'll go, oh, really? And, and the doctor or the clinician can then say, oh, by the way, we're all doing it here. Instant trust. And the cancer patient will go, well, what do you mean? Well, no, we... You know, every day we do a little bit to improve our mental health proactively. We're trying to build up our resilience. It's a lot of fun. We all support each other. Um, and then all of a sudden you now have trust Yeah. with that cancer patient. And so this is where we want to go, I hope, with this. This is the next step is to figure out how to make that happen to help healthcare workers that are maybe stressed out with COVID. But to blur the lines between clinician and patient. Mm. To, to get rid of that power and get everyone back to where I think they want to be, and that is just more human. Create more of a bond. And the, the, the feedback you're getting from your clinicians and them being such a big part of your support system, you want to believe that what they're telling you is what they do. It goes back to your point of like, hey, we're, we're doing it as well. Yeah. You know, we're doing it whether we have cancer or not. It's preventative. It's also good for our health. Going back to your point about longevity, you can also still do it. And it goes back to your point about it's no longer just about fighting cancer. It's about being healthy. And again, it changes that dialogue a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm exercising today because I'm being healthy. So if you think about the strategy or the hope here, if we can still start with a small group with an AHS, Covenant, U of A, IRSM, you know, the cancer, cancer world, uh, the Cross Cancer Clinic, maybe Wellspring, and we can start with a small group of people that can test our... I think it's the best mental health tool in the world. I believe that with the research we have behind it. Ten areas of research. Incredibly simple to use. Not a lot of friction. Start in any area. 
build in, you know, build on your strength. It's it's your own personalized healthcare system. It's funny because you know all of these um, medical solutions, you know, these health apps, the quantifiable solution where you know you get all this biofeedback and there's all these algorithms. Yeah. We like to tell people. You're the algorithm. <laughs> yeah, it's you. It's, you start doing the You're shit. controlling it. Yes, and and so um, AHS has 110,000 people working for them. So my vision is to try to get because ultimately, at the end of the day, doctors they want this for their own mental health. If there's a way we could free up time for them, where they can sit down with families and patients and talk to them about their life, and then take that patient through the clinical intervention, and they feel like they've done something meaningful to get that person back onto whatever their life path was, we're at least giving them that conversation. Right now, they don't have it. A lot of them don't have it. Tell your story, right? Your your patient, your client, will appreciate you giving them an idea of where you come from. They'll respect you more. Yeah, but they need it for their own mental health because yeah. right now it's like a car in a garage. Yeah, I, I hate to say that's our healthcare system, for the most part, and and it's terrible. And it's not and, moving; it's just staying idle. Because they're you know they're spending twelve years to become a doctor, and they're and and they're not getting the thing that they deserve, or a nurse, and they deserve that interaction. They deserve to know that you know there's a patient story that they empower that patient and their family. And and that's what we're trying to do. That's why I'm excited about my position on the board and being a shit disturber yeah. for, for some good things. It surprised me. It, it really, when you share that, Stephen, I, my eyes are now more open to how it's not just you helping other people who are in a position in one, once what you were in as a patient. You're also helping doctors understand how to just be better doctors. Better humans. How to be better human beings and be there more as part of the team, going back to being a part of the tribe that uh, anyone who needs that type of help needs at that given time. There's this placebo effect that is so powerful. Again, University of Stanford, the faculty of presence, that if a doctor makes the eye contact with you, how's your sister? Oh, that's a lovely, you know, blouse you have on. That's a cool sweater, and you look really good today. And they genuinely are invested in you. There's a healing effect. It, yeah. The studies they've done on that. Um, so we're trying to get them to trust in that process. And the doctors are, they, I'm sure they know it, but they live such a, like a intense, high level of uh, stress-induced um environments through the jobs they're doing because of the strenuous amount of hours and the number of lives they're saving that i know sometimes that becomes the last thing to do on the list it's like oh i gotta quickly go into the next dorm or i gotta go to the next room but yeah like getting them to adding a little bit of that into their day because even from someone like myself i've never personally had to endure um as long of an episode i'm sure as you have in being in the hospital Stephen. but for me even a week in the hospital when i needed to reconstruct my jaw it was as though we were at like the 
the will of our doctor. Like the, the doctor was God for that week. Mm-hmm. You know, every time he came in, oh, please give us good news. Or, oh, this doctor was a little rude. Like, like you know, like as a family, as a people who are in your kinship, they can't help but like notice every single movement and behavior that doctor makes because that doctor, your life is in your loved one's hands. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your life is in that doctor's hands. I don't so you respect more what they do and what they say to you. Yeah, that, that again, uh, one of the board members really responded to patient empowerment because ultimately, whatever you can empower the patient to do from a prehabilitation perspective, you know, eat well, train for your surgery, sounds ridiculous. You know, mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, get prepared. You're going to get a better uh, return on in their investment than you. Yeah. Um, but also you're going to be able to be as empowered as they are. Um, and they're going to respect as a patient that, oh, hey, I see that, you know, your vitals are better than they were when you came in three weeks ago. And this is Progress. good. Thank, yeah. And, yeah. and there's, a, that, there's that mutual respect now. It's going both ways. It's not car going into garage. Patient has no power. That asymmetry of care that we have where 95 or 100 percent of his clinical um, Dr. Wolfhart, who started IRSM with, with Gordon Wilkes, another doctor, him and I talked about this 25 years ago. And he said, Stephen, there's too much asymmetry in healthcare, and, and you need to make it more successful. <laughs> it's on you. <laughs> it's on me. So I've been, I'm a little late, but shit happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so uh, I'm really excited. I'm hoping um, to change healthcare. Uh, so for you, it, it means if I get my way, we're going to need, we need a lot more candidates in the world. <laughs> yeah, someone's got to train 110,000 healthcare workers. And <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> businesses, government officials, moms, yeah. dads. Like we need to get everyone just moving. Everyone's got to be on board. And honestly, it's, it's why it was such a, whether it was a year, a year and a half ago, Stephen, or now, it, it brings me such a joy in, in, in concluding our podcast and recognizing the importance of having you on. And I find better now than never, right? Having you on and sharing light on how our um, healthcare system is currently um, operating and where it's headed, as well as you know your own personal take on the documentary you're creating. I, I just want to take a second to just acknowledge how much even for you down to just being a person, you value health and fitness and how much that has, uh, I say this to, to everyone that crosses paths with me now is like, if you prioritize your health and fitness, everything else in your life will naturally take its course. You know, that, that, that ceiling in which you put for yourself. Yeah, sure. Goggins is going to tell you to go 20 foot higher, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell you first, let's, let's make it a foot higher. Mm-hmm. Incrementally, we talked about progression, and there, there's there's a, there's a time and place for everyone and anyone in this world to to maximize their potential, and and not just downgrade their ability to do what they're actually capable of doing. And you are an advocate for that, and I appreciate you for coming on today and just being very vulnerable and just sharing your personal experiences and and talking about where you're going to take your current experiences. And um, if you're anything like me, when you voice out loud something you're going to do you're that much more willing to get after it and get it done you know well i'm, I'm 80 percent of the time i'm right and 20 percent <laughs> of the time i'm probably wrong there's some slack but right? that's okay i'm an artist i can always fall back on that well you know i I've, you know i've studied a lot i've researched a lot but ultimately at the end of the day as you said earlier i'm lucky that i've been given this abundance of energy yeah um i don't 
I'm just so filled with gratitude that I'm, you know, I'm like, people, I confuse people. They go, what are you? Are you an artist? Are you a healthcare person? Are you a photographer? Are you a business consultant? What are you? <laughs> yeah. Which bio do you want me to send you? That was my favorite know, part when you I said know. that to I, me. I, and so I'm just Stephen. Yeah. I really am. I'm, you know, my mom said, help your brother. Um, and I think she meant when she said that, uh, she used to feed the, the Hungarian gypsies and to the Hungarian restaurant in Vancouver that would come in the back door. You know, a couple would go in and easily spend $150, $200 in a meal and she'd be feeding, giving free food to the Tsigans, the Hungarian gypsies, you know, at 12, midnight, 1 in the morning. And I think when she said, help your brother, she meant you, everyone. Yeah. Because that was her spirit. And, and so that's, that's who I am. I love that. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a cancer survivor. I'm, yep. uh, I'm, I'm here to, my passion is to help others. That's it. I love that. That's amazing, Stephen. I, I want to close out on a question we like to ask all of our guests. And it, it's something where you could take this anywhere you like. We believe every single person who comes on the show, uh, indoctrinate certain principles on on always taking it to the next level and 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 being able to recognize that you belong on the second floor on the podcast on um the 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 evolution of life always taking you uh one step closer and closer and closer to uh whatever it is that you you're on the pursuit of and from your own personal opinion what do you believe it takes for audience members listening to this what does it take to, to get to the second floor? What, what sort of mindset and what sort of um, actions does one need to take to make it and get to that next step? Um, there, there's a, a lot of it is trust. Um, uh, you have a path in life and you need to trust that path when you make choices or decisions, whether they're good or bad. Again, if you can accept that outcome, um, for me, you know, I've taken a lot of risks, uh, a lot of them through creativity, a lot, you know, don't be afraid to think big, um, because if you think, you know, Bill Gates, you know, his dream was to have a Microsoft computer in every house in the world, and he was a failure. That did not happen. But look how successful he was from a business perspective. So in life, if you have an idea, go for it. And if, you're, if you only get 2 or 5% of that idea, what a great fail. But trust in that process. Um, because life will bring you characters. You know, my dad used to tell me, be careful, how you, <clears throat> be careful who you meet. Because one person can change your life. And if you have more than one person, you're lucky. Like Raj, you know, sitting down with him, I don't know, a year ago, talking about Pepe. Um, just having coffee. And, you know, he told me about his tribe, and, you know, they sit around and they get together once a month. Maybe you're part of that, and they all ask each other, what's your number? One to a hundred. And it's sort of exactly what we were doing with Pepe, you know, because we have a Pepe score, a number. So, you know, trust that process because that process brought me to Raj. And a little bit of Raj is in Pepe. A little bit of you is in Pepe. A little bit of everyone that I've ever met in my life is, 
is in you know when Pepe is successful and it's the world's leading proactive mental health tool, it's not Stephen's win, it's all of our win. I think that's what gets you to that next level. It's you're not the big sunflower grouped over, oh look at me, I'm the biggest sunflower, I'm all alone. I'm one of those five or six sunflowers blown in the wind and we're all balancing each other out. And I think I that's that. what gets you to the next level. Wow. It's the water that helped grow it. It's the sunshine that gave it the vitamin D. It's the it's the the very act of the wind blowing it one direction to make it so beautifully curved to one side. It's You're gonna be tested every everything. day. Everything. And you see those little tests as small gains and, and keep that balance. I it's yeah. one thing to say you're a product of your own environment, but it's a whole other shift when you mention that you're a product of everyone you surround yourself around to a degree. And be thankful and be aware that every single person that has crossed your path is 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 an element of the the bile and all product that you're that you're representing that you're putting out there. You know that's huge. I really appreciate you sharing that. With when Pepe is fully running mm-hmm. and fully established and you have it out, can we get an idea of timeline or already can we get an idea of how can people get in touch with you, Stephen, um, that will help um, grow Peppy, but also help them stay more mentally um, resilient, Um, especially given the fact that you told me it's specific purpose is geared towards individuals uh, who've been diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. I I just want our audience to be aware of recognizing, you know, uh, how they can go when and um, who can go? Um, Peppy.life, P-E-P-Y dot life. Check out the website. Everything we talked about is there. We're going to be firing up the Do the Dots workshops in January, so sign up for Do... Anyone can take the workshop. Perfect. If you're a young person, a millennial, it doesn't matter. You, you know, the workshops are on Zoom right now. They're you know not the most ideal thing, but we're doing... Our Zoom etiquette is phenomenal. Good in terms of social prescribing and everyone checking in, but we have a very deliberate process. This is social technology. So we need to get the social part right. We need champions of new resilience. We need, the Sunflower Project was perfect. Um, Had we launched in March, I feel like we would have done workshops, validate the Pepe technology model technology. Now it's different. Now we have big sunflower, kids, family, a long-term goal we can work on, develop a toolkit for parents and for the next generation, do some workshops, build an army. <laughs> Love it. And then scale. Awesome. Um, my business partner, Linda, um, she's amazing. It's like, you know, maybe it shouldn't be a technology thing to start with, and, and I agree with her. It needs to be people-based. The energy from Social Pepe, movement. It does. It's social movement first, and then, oh, if you want to see what your peppy score is or you want to connect with your tribe online, sort of like Strava, and give each other kudos, and if you want some help with intermittent fasting, what is that, and how to balance out your movement with your nutrition, with your regeneration, it might be there in the app, but it has to be the social movement first. And and um, thank you, COVID, 
or fuck you, COVID. <laughs> oh, whichever one. We're going we're gonna to have our sunflower. We're going to build it. And that's what people are going to remember. I love that. I feel the same way about COVID. I'm like, thank you, but I hate you too. <laughs> For very different reasons. We're allowed to swear. But <laughs> no, that's fine. There that's it is. Freedom of expression. <laughs> um, no, that's awesome, Stephen. It's good. We got a better idea of it. And uh, for those who want to connect with you personally, where can we where can we find you if there's any uh, platform technologically where we can continue to follow your journey? And uh, for anyone who wants to reach out, um, I'm you know I'm on Peppy Dot Life. Awesome. Fire me off an email. It's Stephen at Peppy Dot Life. Um, deliberately, you know, dialed down the social media game, mm. um, but it will be dialed back up. We're going to awesome. need ambassadors for Peppy. We're going to need people to tell their peppy story. We're going to build a documentary, and as we build it, we're going to share it with the world. So uh, my strong social media game pre-COVID will become strong again leading into uh, 2021. And uh, you know, our presence is going to be felt with the intention of finding some good out of this thing yep. that we all went through. Absolutely. Well... That's Stephen Shorba in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen. I uh, appreciate having you on, Stephen. I'd, you're welcome back anytime, honestly. I feel like we could do a two-hour roller coaster of an episode every damn time you're on. So um, appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, uh, subscribe to us across um, all of our streaming platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, um, as well as Telesoptic TV now. So, sweet. There we have it. That's a wrap, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kenny.